Good morning again. Um, so, our family is going to be leaving next weekend for our big road trip to Texas and Louisiana because those are the best places to be this time of year from what we hear. And I'll come back into town the next weekend for Travis's ordination, but otherwise I, we won't see you for a little while. And I wanted to share with you a passage that has become sort of an anchor for me uh, in the last six months, but even, even longer than that. I realized that the first time I was asked to preach at my, little, my Baptist church growing up, I was probably 18, which I was nervous, but I imagine they were even more nervous. Um, and this was the passage I preached. I don't even remember what I said. And they probably, don't. Even, no one does. But for some reason, this passage has been sort of an anchor for me for, for a long time. I, I think that if you um, are, are a Christian and if you live in Scripture and make Scripture a part of your life, there are passages that become that way for you. You live with them in this deep way and they become significant for you in directing and orienting your life. And uh, those can be different passages for different people. And, and this has been one of those for me. Now, the church, and by the church, I mean Christians since the time of Jesus have always said that when you are reading the Bible, there are multiple layers of meaning within it. This doesn't mean that it can say whatever you want it to mean. Uh, there are specific layers of meaning that the church has pointed out. So one of these is the historical meaning. Every time you read, there is some historical meaning within the passage, simply what it meant in its time and in its place. So people spend their lives researching and writing on the context that the Bible was written in so that we can better understand this level of meaning, removed from it as we are. So for a passage like this one, what kind of house was it that Martha and Mary invited Jesus into? Was it a house like one of ours or was it something much more simple? Um, what kind of food might Martha have prepared for Jesus? And these are interesting things, but it sort of stays on the surface, doesn't it? Another level of meaning that's always been too important to the church is a scripture's application to the end of time. What will this look like when Christ returns and all things are made right the way they are meant to be? And what does this have, passage have to say about that? For instance, will we have many things to be anxious and troubled about when that day comes? Like Martha, Martha is in this passage. The idea is that in that day when Christ returns, we will not be worried and anxious about anything. And now another layer of meaning that the church has said is present in every passage is the way that the Holy Spirit who lives within Scripture and empowers Scripture, speaks directly into our lives as people, as individuals. When you read Scripture, the Holy Spirit empowering Scripture applies it directly to your life. So that the names, in some cases, can even become our names. It is that immediate and intimate a level in which the Lord speaks to us through Scripture. So Mary's name might become one of your names. Say, it is Jed who sits at the Lord's feet and listens to his teaching. 
And Christians throughout history, in one sense, have very much believed this to be true when they read Scripture. That as we pray and read, Christ is with us and we're sitting at his feet. We really are. But I find it more likely for myself that I would hear my name in Jesus' address to Martha. (laughs) Martha, Martha, or Kevin. Kevin, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Scripture is God's personal word to us. And that doesn't mean it's always easy to understand. But it's a good place to start. (laughs) Listening in this way. Now at the beginning of this story. Martha welcomes Jesus into her house. That's the first line. She welcomed Jesus into her house. And it might seem odd. But I'd like you to think about even this. On a very personal level. Not just the historical level of Martha being the one who welcomed Jesus into her house. But how might you welcome Jesus into your house? This happens to be the way that people um, enter into a relationship with God. As it's described in the New Testament. Christians are people who welcome Jesus' presence into their lives. And... In other places, the authors of Scripture describe our bodies as a home for the Spirit of Jesus. So the Apostle Paul says that your body is a temple. It is made to be a dwelling place, a home, a house for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes into your life. Your sins are forgiven through the sacrifice of Jesus who gave himself for you. And he sets you apart as his home. His own, his dwelling place. So Martha welcomes Jesus into her home. And to be a Christian, this is what we do. We welcome Jesus into the home of our own bodies. And he comes to take residence within our lives. But in the story of Martha, something interesting happens right after she welcomes Jesus into her home. She immediately goes to work trying to take care of Jesus. And that's not inherently a bad thing. To be hospitable to the Lord Jesus? That can't be a bad thing, can it? I think of the story of Peter's uh, mother-in-law. She was sick. And Jesus healed her. And it says she immediately got up and began serving him. And it wasn't a bad thing. The problem for Martha is that in the midst of her fervent activity, we're told that she was completely distracted from the presence of Jesus. The activity became all-consuming. And she wasn't able to attend to the Jesus that she was actually trying to serve. The service became the thing, not Jesus himself. Now you can probably think of times that you were hosting a group at your house. Maybe you didn't ask for much help or maybe the help wasn't very helpful. (laughs) And preparations may not have gone your way. Something burned in the oven and a panic set in. Hasn't this happened to most of the people here? That's probably close to what's happening for Martha. And her guest is Jesus. How might that have felt? But there's something actually even deeper revealed here. And it's an impulse for all of broken humanity. It boggles me how accurate this is. We welcome into our lives the God who says that he has accomplished everything on our behalf. We could never have earned his presence in our lives, in our home. We can only welcome it and receive it 
as the gift that it is. But then we immediately go to work. And we probably don't say it this way, but for many of us it's there. There's a subconscious idea that we have to earn his ongoing presence in our lives. He may have come at first in grace, but he won't stay that way. We have to keep it up for him to stay there. And Mary, though, is altogether different from Martha. She simply sits and listens to Jesus. She receives his presence in their home by giving him her attention, her presence. Now, Martha becomes frustrated by this. In fact, she even becomes frustrated with Jesus. Lord, she says, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. Now, Martha's question holds within it a pretty strong accusation of Jesus. I'm sure many of us have thought this at some point, even if we aren't willing to say it out loud. Lord, do you not care? Do you not care about my suffering? Do you not care that my spouse isn't helping me? Do you not care that I'm alone? Do you not care about me? If you do care, then do something, won't you? And Martha not only questions whether Jesus cares, she also tells him what things should look like if he does care. (laughs) How to prove to her that he cares. Namely, if he cares, he should do something about her lazy sister. (laughs) Instead, Jesus turns this around on Martha. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Now, I enjoy the way this is put by Eugene Peterson in his paraphrase of the Bible, the message. Martha, dear Martha, you're fussing far too much and getting yourself worked up over nothing. One thing only is essential, and Mary has chosen it. It's the main course, and it won't be taken from her. Now, if God does speak directly to people in Scripture, what might he be saying in Jesus' response? Well, I'm personally shocked at the way Jesus rebukes Martha's assumption. Martha assumed that if Jesus truly cared about her, he would deal with her sister. But instead, he deals with Martha. (laughs) Evidently, Mary was not the problem. Martha was. Perhaps in our complaints against others, Jesus might want to start by dealing directly with us. He may want to dislodge our assumptions and completely redirect our focus. Now, more directly, though, Jesus says that among all the things Martha is anxious and troubled by, there's only one thing that's necessary. And that's what Mary has chosen to do. And it will not be taken from her. That's interesting. Everything in life can be taken away. But this one necessary thing, this good portion, Jesus calls it, that thing cannot be taken away. Maybe Jesus would remind us that everything 
can be taken away from us in life very quickly. Nothing is as secure as we would like it to be. None of the relationships we have, the most intimate ones, are none of our work, our finances. Nothing is as secure as we would like it to be, except one thing. At the end of your life, nearly everything will be taken away. But what you've done with me, Jesus seems to say, that cannot be taken away from you. This story often gets boiled down to personality types. Martha's a doer. Mary is a softer, more contemplative type. And maybe there's something to personality here, but if that's all we get out of this, I think Mary's going to have some strong words for us when we meet her one day. And I think Jesus will too. The story is not advocating a do-nothing-but-read-your-Bible-and-pray kind of spirituality, kind of faith. It follows on the heels, actually, of the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is about actively loving your neighbor. Surely Jesus isn't turning from that to say all you need to do is stay home and read your Bible and pray. What this story is about is the posture of our lives. What our lives grow out of. Are you more anxious and troubled about many things? Or more with a posture like Mary's sitting at the Lord's feet? Listening to the one whose words are said to be the very bread of life. Jesus' desire is that all of our lives, even when we're at work, actively serving others, or even responding to emergencies, that we somehow learn to live from Mary's posture. Psalm 27 is a psalm of David, and he seems to have discovered something like this posture. He says of God, He will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. David often speaks of all the enemies he has. And if you read his story about Saul constantly coming after him and sending all of his men to kill him, it seems that in the midst of that, somehow David learned that even in those situations that we would call emergencies probably, his life was at stake. And even in that, David seems to have learned to say, you will hide me under the shelter of your tent. You will conceal me. I'm safe because God is with me. I think that most of us read things like this, but we still ask. We think it's wonderful. That's wonderful to aspire to. But is it really realistic in the midst of my life? Perhaps a young family with children, perhaps older and dealing with um, things related to older children, or perhaps perhaps a work, a kind of burden in your life that you find will not go away. Is it really realistic to live with this posture in the midst of all the anxieties and troubles of our lives? 
Well, and one, one meaning of this passage is that one day when Christ returns, he will finally and entirely free us from being anxious and troubled about many things. The one who cares from us will, for us will take all our anxieties, the pressures of the world. But the work of the Holy Spirit right now is to help us move into that life in the present. To live out of that life right now. His kingdom is now, even though it is not yet. So we may stumble out of the gate every single morning. But His grace is sufficient for us. This is the God who has done everything for us. We don't have to earn his presence in our lives. Instead, we're to only welcome it, receive it as a grace, a gift. He's kind and merciful. And a terrible thing that can happen is that we can turn this merry posture into a form of law that we repeatedly fail to keep. We mess up, we get anxious, we let the troubles infringe on us and create anxiety. And we feel guilty about it. And eventually, we just give up entirely. No, it's not realistic. Not now. Not in my situation in life. But what we're to do instead is to take God at His word. That His mercies really are new every morning. And when the scriptures tell us that they're new every morning, they're not limiting how quickly they can be refreshed for us. They can actually be new every second. Every second that we stumble, we can say, Lord, you're gracious. Help me live out of a posture of absolute trust. Help me to be like Mary and to kneel at your feet, even as I'm going about my work. Jesus is inviting us to live out of his abundance, what he's done. Now, one of the reasons I'm sharing this passage with you is because I, I don't know about you, but for me, it's really hard to just stop doing. I often wonder about the ways that modern American ways of doing rest and vacation connect to the way that the Bible talks about rest. So the passage from Exodus described this rhythm of rest that God commanded his people to take on. It was a rhythm that was reflected in weeks one day of complete rest, stop and do nothing. But not just weeks. He says, every few months you're going to have a feast to me. I've heard it said that there's actually not a month that goes by in the Jewish calendar where they don't have holidays and feasts that they're supposed to keep. What we've done in an American society, in a Western society, is we've taken the notion that we need rest, even though we feel guilty about it, and it's become dependent on people who have resources to take rest. But notice what it said in Exodus. It said, you take rest so that even your servants can be refreshed. You see, the concept of rest is not dependent on how much money we have, how far that we can go to get away. It's dependent on simply stopping and trusting the God who is mighty and who can do things when we do nothing. I want to encourage our church to be shaped by this God who tells us to stop. 
to live at a place, out of a posture of kneeling at his feet. So that when even storms come, even when we're getting ready on a Sunday morning and trying to set things up, and I was, felt sorry for Jed. There were two or thing, three things he brought out this morning that he, he simply had to take back to the shed because we hadn't told him that we didn't need those. Oh, I pray that my life and that the life of this body is shaped by a God who doesn't ask us to live at a frenetic pace whose work is not dependent on us exhausting ourselves all the time, but who has accomplished everything for us and has come to live within us so that we can live out of his abundance. The Lord Jesus is Sabbath rest. And in coming into our lives, that's what he wants to bring to us. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.